if you would. So I have a couple of friends that I meet with regularly. We meet every week, and we've been meeting for about 17 years. And uh, we're kind of like accountability partners. And occasionally we'll take a break from meeting at Jeff's office, and we'll just go to like First Watch or something like that. And probably about two months ago, we were sitting at first watch and our server came over to us and I happened to notice that she had a, uh, a tattoo on her arm, on her forearm. And in typical fashion, it was sort of a script type of font, but I couldn't read it and I didn't want to be super rude and just kind of, you know, get in there, right? And so I just, I could tell by the uh, format of it that it was a scripture verse, right? I could see a, a word or a, a book and the numbers and the colon and everything. And so I, I said, if you don't mind me asking, like, what is, what's that scripture verse? And she said, it's Psalm 27.7. And Jeff and Nathan and I went, oh, okay, cool, you know? And so I got home and looked it up, and I looked up Psalm 27, verse 7. It says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. And I thought, well, that's kind of neat. Um, not Maybe means something to her, right? I should have probably followed up and asked her, but I didn't. But we did tell her that we thought that was just beautiful and really neat. And so I got to thinking, well, maybe we should just take a look at Psalm 27. That's kind of how we got here. You may say, isn't there some greater, more profound reason that you chose Psalm 27? Nope, there's not. <laughs> I uh, just saw that on a young lady's uh, arm, and I thought, cool, let's take a look at it. Michael probably has a much more profound or, or spiritual reason for the Psalms that he picks and takes us through, but not Story this morning. <laughs> yeah. So just a, a little bit of a background here first. You know that as we've been going through this Psalm series, we've been trying to highlight some of the grammatical and technical uh, techniques that the authors have used. So I'll do that here for a moment before we get into it. This is an, a psalm by David. It's not exactly sure when um, it was authored. We could probably pick a couple of moments and, and events in David's life that this would relate to. But in general, it is a psalm that reveals David's trust in the Lord, and it highlights that he has really no one to fear. Okay? And a lot of people will break this down into two basic halves, sort of generically. We're not going to do that, so don't write that down yet. They'll kind of break it verses 1 through 6, and then they'll treat 7 through 14 as a second half. But I actually think that we can break it down even further and create a greater continuity and not divide it in half. And you'll see what I'm talking about in a minute. The sections that I think we're going to see here are going to look more like this if you're going to take some notes. Um, we'll see in verse 1 basically just an introduction. Okay, he's just going to make a declaration or a truth about the character of God. He's, he's going to highlight for us that God is his light and his salvation and his defense. And so that's the truth, that's the declaration that he's making. We'll just kind of call that the intro. But then the next three sections, he is going to reveal why he trusts and how he trusts in the Lord. And why he has no one to fear. So our second section would be verses 2 through 3, where he says that God causes his enemies to fail. Our third section would be verses 4 through 6, where David says, I don't fear anyone because I have set my life toward God. The fourth section will be verses 7 through 12, 
where David is going to reveal that he doesn't have to fear because God will not forsake him. And then our last little section will be verses 13 and 14. It's just going to be sort of a conclusion that you'll see. So in terms of some literary techniques that we've talked about, uh, you guys probably recall from Michael sharing that the Psalms include a lot of metaphors, right? Where we say something is, it may not really be literally, but it's being used to describe something. And let's look at some of the metaphors that we see throughout here. Look at verse 1. He says, uh, the Lord is light. Uh, Again, in verse 1, he says, the Lord is his defense. And you might even see a couple of other ones throughout here where a metaphor is used to basically substitute something to prove a point. We also see some use of personification. Michael introduced that concept to us. You probably know that from school as well, when you attribute personal or human-like qualities to an inanimate object, right? Look at verse 3. He says that his heart will not fear. Now, we know exactly what he means when he says that, right? But does the heart actually have the ability to fear? Well, not really. Uh, Think about how we use the term heart to represent uh, who we are. We talk about our feelings and our emotions coming from our heart. We say that we ask Jesus into our heart, or Jesus lives in my heart. Well, not literally, but people typically know what we mean when we say that. He says in verse 8, my heart said to thee. Does our heart actually speak? No, but we understand what David is doing when he uses that phraseology. Verse 12, he says that people who uh, rise up against him, they breathe out violence. Can you breathe out violence? Not necessarily. Um, Verse 14, let your heart take courage. Again, the heart having the ability to, quote unquote, take courage. Um, In verse 21, how about this? How about some word pictures? Where, where an author is, is, is creating this scene for us to help emote or give us this idea or this picture in our minds. Verse 21 says, evildoers devour my flesh. Just think about what that means, that idea, that word picture that he's creating there. Verse 5, he says that God will conceal me in his tabernacle. He will hide me in his tent. Verse 6, he will lift me up on a rock. My head is lifted up above my enemies. Aren't those some beautiful word pictures that David is giving us there to describe how he feels about the Lord? And then the last thing I'll I'll mention in this psalm that I think we can look at is we see what I'll call a progressive intimacy in the psalm. You may say, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by a progressive intimacy? Well, this sort of first section that we're going to look at, not the intro, but those verses 2 through 3, we'll see that David speaks of this very external defense by God on his behalf, that God causes his enemies to fail and to fall. Okay, So kind of an external. But then in verses 4 through 6, we're going to see that David highlights this personal decision that he has made to seek God all the days of his life and to dwell in the house of the Lord. Right, So it's a little bit more personal on David's behalf. And then in the next section that we'll look at, verses... Um, what are we at, Uh, 7 through 12, we're going to see this personal decision, or uh, we're going to see that um, David is going to redirect his text to focus on God, and he's going to offer a series of petitions directly 
to God, highlighting his need in verses 7 through 12. So that's kind of how we're going to see this. Let's look at um, verse 1 here. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evil doer, we'll just leave it there. How many times have you guys heard the term light used throughout scripture? A lot, right? Light is often used synonymously with God to represent God's direction for us, God's deliverance, God himself, God's presence. And think about what Jesus said in John. He said, I am the light of the world. And it's speculated that he probably shared that with his audience during the Festival of Lights, the Festival of Illumination. And that was an annual festival that the Jewish people would put on where they would light these gigantic candelabras. I mean, huge, gigantic in the city. And they would illuminate the whole city up by the temple. And you can just imagine Jesus walking through there with his disciples and looking up at that during the Festival of Illumination and going, you know what? I am the light of the world. What do we read about in Genesis, God's first creative act? He said, let there be light. And so David reveals here that God is his light and his salvation. And he says, whom shall I fear? And we see this parallelism here too again, don't we? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Whom shall I fear and whom shall I dread are some parallelism there, right? They're kind of saying the same thing, and he's using that rhythm to drive home a point for us. And, of course, we know what the answer is, right? Is there anyone that we should fear? No, not in Christ Jesus, not in the Lord. And he says in verses 2 and 3, When evildoers came upon me, they stumbled and fell. Though enemies encamped around me, my heart will not fear. Though wars arise against me, I remain confident. So this is our first section where he reveals, I don't have anybody to fear, like I said in verse 1, because God comes to my defense. And we can generally assume that the defense that David is referring to is a very natural and physical defense, right? In Jewish culture... Uh, we know that David himself had a personal understanding of, of an afterlife. Uh, Michael has revealed that on a couple of occasions. David asked who was worthy of dwelling in the house of the Lord in Psalm 15. But also we know that when David's son passed away, he said to those around him who were looking at his emotions, and he said, well, I can go to him even though he can no longer come to me. And what that represented, what that caused his audience and us to realize is that David knew there was something after this. And so David is likely saying that God is both his salvation in a spiritual sense, but also his salvation in a very natural sense. Think about all the things that God had saved David from physically. Remember Goliath? Remember all the attempts that Saul had on David's life? We saw that in Samuel, being chased and pursued. David is, is king, and he's surrounded by wars and, and, and other nations that are warring and rising up against Israel. And so we can assume here that David says, 
Though evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies stumbled and they fell. And so God's defense very often for David and even for us can be a very external where he's causing our enemies and our adversaries to fall. And you might say, well, I'm not in a lot of wars. I'm not in a lot of battles. No, you probably aren't physically. But you have some stuff going on in life. When you're at school and when you're at work, you're navigating some tricky situations. You're coming up against other personalities sometimes that create a little bit of friction in your life, right? Some of you know that I serve on our board of trustees that are in our neighborhood. And there's a whole host of operations and tasks that we are uh, charged with, but one of which is addressing properties and improvements and things that are being made without permission. And so I had to engage with a, a neighbor about some activities, and it got really heated and very intense. And I was fine. I kept my countenance. I kept my composure. I wasn't worried about it, but he got very animated because he was frustrated that he was in the wrong. And so it came time to have him come to our board meeting and, and collectively present his concerns to the board. And people said to me, are you okay with that? Are you and I was like, I'm fine. I mean, that's his right. He should. And so in this meeting, he's just airing all these grievances. It was like Seinfeld with uh, the Festivus poll, you know. He said uh, all this stuff, and then afterwards people came up to me, and they said, how did you remain silent? How could you just sit there? And I said, well, you heard everything he said. And they said, yeah. And I said, he told on himself. He showed us all of his cards. He gave everything away, and the only person he made look bad was himself. I didn't have to say anything, and they said, you know what? You're right. We already knew the truth. Nothing that he said made you look bad. He told on himself, and he essentially, I'll say, fell and failed. And I think oftentimes in our life, that's the defense that God comes to on our behalf, that when we are focused on him and we don't get prideful and arrogant about situations and we trust in him, in Christ Jesus, he comes to our defense. And he came to David's defense, and David says, I don't have anybody to fear because God is my defender. He is my light and my salvation. And in verse 3, he says, this gives me confidence. Though wars arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. I will remain confident. Remember what Ephesians 6.12 says? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so I would say our first principle this morning for us as a takeaway is that we should not fear either because God comes to our defense. In Christ Jesus, we have the greatest defender of all. And this should give us confidence in the same way that it gave David confidence. Now, our second section, verses 4 through 6, we're going to see that David doesn't fear because he has set his desires Toward God. Good verses four through six. He says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. 
I will sing praise. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. So what David reveals here is he shares this motivation that he has for living. His motivation is that he will set his heart and his mind on God and his desire is that he would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Now we can assume that in David's day, he's likely wanting to literally be in the temple itself. He would like to live in God's tent. But I think we can safely assume that he might recognize Maybe that's a possibility. Maybe that could be a reality. Maybe not. But when he says this one thing, it could be an idiom of sorts, if you would. You know what I mean when I say an, an idiom, an expression that we use. Downtown at our building, for example, I will tell people who are thinking about using our space and they're going to uh, sign an agreement with us. Verbally, I will say, well, the one thing that's really important to us is that all of the content that takes place during your event is clean and respectful. Well, yes, that is probably of utmost importance to us, but it's not really the one thing that I ask of them. They're signing an agreement that has lots of things in it. But what I want to make sure that I communicate that is of priority is the content. So I will say the one thing. And so we could say that David here, of utmost priority for himself, is, is the one thing he would ask of the Lord is that he would be able to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. If that's what he could ask, that's what he wants. And he says, that's what I'm going to seek. That's what I'm going to be after. That's how I'm going to direct my life, is to seek after dwelling in the house of the Lord. You see, to be in the house of the Lord or to be in the presence of the Lord is a really, really good thing. David says, with some parallelism here, he says, Behold the beauty of the Lord. And he talks about meditating in his temple. That's kind of some parallelism there, right? I believe that it is impossible, scripturally speaking, what we know about God, it is impossible to be in the presence of the Lord and not behold his beauty and not meditate on his goodness, right? Think about that. When Isaiah was ushered in to the temple and had a vision of the Lord, he fell to his knees and said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he saw the holiness of God. When Paul was ushered into the third realm, as he talks about it, he couldn't even put into words what he had experienced and what he had seen. We know that when we spend eternity with Christ Jesus, we will be completely in awe and we will be worshiping God for eternity. And I would say that it is impossible to be in the presence of God and not withhold or be, I said, behold his beauty and meditate on his goodness. Matthew Henry writes, the harmony of all of God's attributes is his beauty. The harmony of all of God's attributes is wrapped up in his beauty. Um, remember, remember Peter and John on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter says, let's build some tabernacles. Let's build some tents. Let's build some shelters and stay here, for it is good for us to be here. Let's not leave. He loved seeing God in all of his glory. He loved being there in the presence of Jesus, and he said, let's stay here. It is good for us to be here. Uh, there's a Bible study that I'm involved in on Monday nights, and it's very young believers, not young in age, but new believers in the Lord. And one of them had shared a video testimony 
with us privately via email, and so I was able to watch it in my own time at home. And I was watching this video testimony, and it was a, a lady who had maintained or claimed that she had died and had spent significant time in heaven with Jesus and had this dialogue with Jesus. And this dialogue, in essence, amounted to Jesus giving her a choice and saying, what would you like if I could do anything for you, okay? And she wanted to go back to earth, and so he granted that to her and all this other stuff. And I'm watching this video testimony, and I had a notepad with me because, you know, like after like the first two minutes, I was like, okay. And it was about 28 minutes long or something like that. So I'm like taking notes. And most of my notes basically revealed how um, inaccurate her claims were in light of what we know scripturally. I don't believe that anybody who would be in the presence of Jesus would choose to leave and come back. I think when we see him face to face, it is going to be a wonderful and amazing moment. And we would never trade time with Jesus to come back here, among a host of other concerns I had about that video. Look at verse 5. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. Isn't this a, a, just a really neat word picture? That to be hidden in the Lord's secret place. And in verse 6, he says, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy. Now, I think what, something that's really important for us to recognize there is this is something that David's heart desires to do. He wants to offer these sacrifices, and he knows that when he's in the presence of God, it will be a delight for him to do so. And I believe that what's important about that is that's a sharp contrast to the behavior that we see in a lot of the Jewish sacrificial systems. Now, I'm not beating up on the Jews because I'm saying at times I think our hearts resemble that of the Jews as well. We may come to church because it's Sunday, but not because we're excited to be here, but because that's what we do. See where I'm getting? The Jews had a very prescribed sacrificial system that they adhered to perfectly, and for centuries they executed it. But were they executing it with a proper heart? Remember when David's sin was revealed to him by the prophet? In, in, in Psalm 51, he authors and he says, God is not delighted in simply just sacrifices and burnt offerings. What makes God happy is a contrite heart and a clean spirit. In other words, David knew he could continue to go to the altar, offer the burnt sacrifice, because that was what was prescribed of him. But that didn't bring God joy if David really didn't want to do it and if he was just going through the motions. What he learned when he was convicted of his sin with Bathsheba was that what was most important was a contrite heart, a repentant heart. Lord, I am sinful, and I don't even deserve to be in your presence, and yet your grace has allowed me, and your mercy has allowed me to continue living even though I'm worthy of punishment by death. That's what he says in Psalm 51. And so I believe here, when he's saying, it will be a joy to offer sacrifices, he's saying, my heart can't wait to do this. Not because I'm supposed to do it, because I want to do it. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well, the father is seeking a time, and he is seeking those who will worship in spirit and truth. Not just going through the motions, but worshiping in spirit and truth. So our second principle this morning 
is that I believe we should set our hearts on God and desire to seek him all our days. Just like David, we should set our hearts on God and desire to seek him all our days. You see, God no longer lives in a physical temple or a tabernacle. He no longer dwells in some geographical specific location. We know that in Christ Jesus, under the new covenant, we are washed in his blood and he sends his Holy Spirit and we are his temple and he lives in us. We don't have to march to somewhere specific and kick open doors and go in to be in the presence of God. We have God here now with us everywhere we go. You've heard Michael refer to Ed DeZago's proposition that what we have now in Christ Jesus is even better than what Adam and Eve had in the garden. Oftentimes, Christians will say, can you imagine how good it was in the garden? Can you imagine how neat it was? Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in the cool of the day. It doesn't get any better than that. There wasn't any sin. Well, there was temptation. And the reason Ed DeZago proposes that maybe we have it better now is because we have God's Holy Spirit living and residing in us. He is not external like he was in the garden only, but we have now been partakers of the divine, as Peter says. That's beautiful. God not only reconciled us and gave mercy and extended mercy with our sin, but he went even further and extended grace to us and reconciled us back to him and made us partakers. Jesus said, it is good for me to go away because I will send the Holy Spirit and he will be your comforter and he will be your helper. If I don't leave you, he can't come. And so David's highest prayer and desire was to be in the presence of God daily. So our third section, verses 7 through 12. David doesn't fear because God hears him and will not forsake him. Verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to thee, thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. Hear that personification there? Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. Remember what I said about this progressive intimacy? We saw that David revealed God's defense in sort of an external way, that God caused his adversaries and his enemies to stumble and to fall on behalf of David. Kind of external, right? And then we see David shift and say, my heart has desired to seek God all the days of my life and to dwell in his presence. A little bit more personal, right? A little bit more internal. And now we see this petition. We see this direct petition to God, but even more, he has shifted the focus. He was simply talking about all the things that God has done, and now he shifts his focus to God, and he says, oh, Lord, hear me when I cry. See how intimate that's getting? He's now having this dialogue with the Lord himself, and he's changed his perspective. 
And I would say that some of these verses likely represent an acknowledgement by David that physically residing in the tent or the temple may not have been a possibility. And so what he's highlighting here and what he's saying is, what I do know is that though I may not be in your temple physically, God, I know that you are with me where I go. And you hear me, Lord, when I cry out. And you have promised not to abandon me. You know, we might read these verses and we go, wow, David, this is some pretty demanding petitions of the Lord. I mean, just, just look at if we kind of break these down. We say, he says, hear me, Lord, when I cry. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn me away in anger. Do not abandon or forsake me. Those are some pretty strong uh, petitions and I'll say declarations to God, aren't they? But I believe he's offering those with a very pure and sincere heart. And what he's doing is he is relying on what he knows about the character of God. These prayer requests represent a quality of relationship with God. You see, David understood that he was a sinful man coming before a holy God. He understood the consequences of his sin. He understood the wretchedness that his sin represented in the eyes of a holy God, yet he understood the mercy of God as well. And so these are the prayers of a person who understands the character of God. He makes these petitions rooted in what he knows about the God he serves. When God whispered in David's ear to seek his face, David's heart said, I will seek your face. There was a time when each one of us was unsaved. And it's the prevenient grace of God that whispers in our ears and speaks to our hearts and says, there's more to this life. There's more to life than just going through the motions. And you need a savior. You're sideways with me right now and you need reconciliation. It's God whispering in the hearts in a prevenient grace before we accept that free gift. And all he asks of us is, here is my salvation. Here is my grace. Do you accept it? And we say yes. God spoke to our hearts to cause us to say, yes, we will seek your face. God is a wonderful God. We want to take credit for the salvation that we have in him, and yet he has done it all. He reached out to us and whispered to us and said, come, come daughter, come son, accept And in verses 9 and 10, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. And he says this kind of interesting statement here. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. You know, a, a better sort of literal translation of that is, if my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. And so what David does in verse 9 is he acknowledges that God has been his help past tense, he's been his help, and he also acknowledges that God is his salvation looking forward. 
That's a beautiful thing. God, you've been my help in ages past, and you will continue to be my salvation. And I know that you will not forsake me. And God, even if the most intimate relationships in my life, my father and my mother, in whom I am probably most dependent, every one of us in this room can relate to that. If you're a child here, you know how much, Sayer, if you're a child here, you know how much you need your dad whether you want to admit it or not. Back there, like, grinning. And just think about what it would mean to be forsaken by me, to be kicked out and no longer understood or embraced as my daughter. Just think about what that would look like. Now, parents, think about what that would mean to do that to a child. And so David uses this example, I think, specifically to contrast how amazing God's grace is when he chooses not to forsake us. Do you see? He takes the most intimate relationship that we might have, the most dependent relationship we might have in life on this side of heaven, and he says, even if that were to happen and be destroyed, God will never, ever forsake me, and he will lift me up. I was on a Samaritan's Purse trip many, many years ago down to Nashville, Tennessee, when they had all that flooding and the Grand Ole Opry and everything else. And there was a pastor down there that I ended up meeting, and, and he was telling me this, this interesting fact. He personally had some biological children, and he had some children that he had chosen to adopt. And he said this. He said this about Tennessee law. Now, I'm not an expert. I'm not an attorney. I don't know. This is just what he said. He said, here's what the state of Tennessee says. You can be so frustrated with your biological child that you can disown that child. You can, you can make a decision, you can decide at some point to, to cut off that relationship and legally no longer be responsible for that child. Okay, fine. A lot of states employ that policy. But he says, here's what the state of Tennessee says about an adopted child. The state of Tennessee says, you may never, ever disown that adopted child once that becomes legal and formal. Now think about who we are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that we are adopted sons and daughters. We have been made heirs of the kingdom. And God will never, ever forsake us he will never cut us off there's nothing that we could ever do to separate ourselves from the love of god john 1 12 and 12 and 13 says but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of god even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god we have been given the right to become the children of God. And just like David proclaims here that God will never, ever forsake him, God will never forsake us either. And that's a beautiful thing. So our third principle, God hears us and will never forsake us. God hears us and he will never forsake us. And so the last part of this, verses 13 through and 14, is really sort of a conclusion where David began by asking this sort of rhetorical question, if you will, whom 
shall I fear? Whom shall I dread? And look at verses 13 and 14. He sort of brings it all back around. And he even changes his perspective again. Remember what I said about this literary technique? Look at how he jumps out in verse 14. He says, wait for the Lord, be strong. He's talking in almost like a second person point of view now. He has stopped directing his text directly to God. And now he's pulled back out as almost a conclusion. He said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And so he says, I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. Remember his concern, whom shall I fear? Well, nobody. And the reason I don't have anyone to fear is for all these things that I just went through, but also because I have seen the goodness of the Lord in my own life. I have seen that he won't abandon me and that he hears me. I have seen him come to my defense with my enemies. I have set my heart upon him and I have chosen to seek him all the days of my life. David's witness of God's goodness has sustained him. Hebrews 11.1, 1, you guys know this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And you say, well, how, are you, how do you relate that? David says he's seen God's goodness. Well, you know, we haven't seen the resurrection with our own eyes. We haven't seen Jesus face to face. We haven't seen heaven, literally. But look at all the promises that we have received by God. And Romans 5 says, this hope does not disappoint. Turn with me to to Romans, and we'll we'll kind of pull this all together and finish this up. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says this. In verse 4, in perseverance, uh, proven character, and proven character, hope. And he says, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, the hope that the author of Hebrews, Hebrews writes is everything that God has declared about himself. And God has said, this hope does not disappoint. You've seen it in action. You may not have seen the resurrected Jesus yet. You may not have seen heaven yet. You may not have seen some of these take place with your physical eyes. But you've seen the evidence of God's goodness in the land of the living. You've seen the evidence of God's goodness in your life already. And it is this hope that we trust in. And it is this hope that does not disappoint. Turn to Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 37. Verses 37 through 39, you guys know this passage. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ 
Jesus our Lord. Is that not what David is saying through Psalm 27? The Lord is my light and my salvation. He is my defense. And Paul wraps it all up right there. We have nothing to fear. and We have no one to fear in Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean that we won't suffer maybe some physical harm. This doesn't mean that life is going to be perfect and, and, and easy. But what we have a hope and a trust in is that God will never forsake us. And as adopted sons and daughters, we become heirs of the kingdom. And David knew that. And that promoted his trust in the Lord. And we should live in the same way. We should set our hearts on God and seek him every day, that we may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives. Whom shall we fear? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text this morning. Thank you for your